the only reason we know much of who God is, who we are, how we relate to Him, and how we relate to each other is because God has given us His Holy Scriptures, the Bible. It's because God has given us the Bible that we have a fuller understanding of who God is, a fuller understanding of who humanity is, who we are as human beings, as those whom He has created, how we relate to Him. I mean, how is it that we are fallen and able to be back in relationship with Him? And how we relate to each other, how we relate to non-believers, those who haven't yet given their lives to Christ, and how we relate to each other in Christ now as brothers and sisters as part of his family. The Bible is crucial to our faith. And so one of the marks of a healthy church as we go through this series, Hitting the Mark, is Bible-based. What does it mean that Houston Street Baptist Church is a Bible-based church? A church that anchors itself in the Word. A church that not only appreciates the Word, but sees, as, sees the Word as its authority. It's authoritative to us. As we walked through this, I remember a couple of years ago, I was with Don Carson and I asked Don uh, some questions. One of them was, Don, what do you think will be the battle of the next generation? And Dr. Carson looked at me and said, the battle is for the Bible. He said, the battle is for the Bible. You see, there was a generation previously where Christians believed the Bible, non-Christians respected the Bible. We now live in a generation where many Christians see the Bible as suspect and non-Christians actually see it as dangerous. Many thinking it should actually be banned and shouldn't be allowed to be used in any form, including churches or places, because they believe that what it teaches is full of lies. It's full of lies. And so the battle is for the Bible. As we look this morning at what it means that we're Bible-based, we're not going to look at the nature of Scripture, its purpose. That was done in a couple of series that you can find on our website online under sermons. One is called Has God Spoken, where there's four uh, sermons that Pastor Paul and I did. Those sermons talk about the authority of Scripture as it comes to how Jesus viewed Scripture, how the author viewed Scripture, how to read Scripture, how to apply Scripture. And then last year as we were going through the book of Romans and we got to Romans 14, we took a look at discerning the disputable. And Pastor Paul and I, again, for four weeks, unpacked discernible matters and how you understand them. So today we're not going to delve into that. What I want to delve into is what exactly is sound doctrine? When the Bible speaks of sound doctrine, what does it mean? What does it mean when it talks about refuting sound doctrine? How do you know if someone's still a believer if they're believing things outside of what's considered sound doctrine? Now, this isn't the first time we've had to deal with this. If you go back historically, you'll find that in church history, Christians developed the Apostles' Creed. It was not written by the Apostles. We actually don't know who wrote the Apostles' Creed. We assume it was written before 390 AD, although that's the first time we haven't found any mention of it in, in history, about 390 AD. Also, there was the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, they wrote the Nicene Creed. Some additions were made in 381 AD. And the Nicene Creed was created because of an Arian heresy. The Arian heresy suggested that Jesus was begot, uh, sorry, that Jesus was created by God, not begotten of God. 
The difference therein being that he was actually someone that God had made, not part of the triune God himself. And so as that Iranian heresy was emerging in that time in church history, a council gathered to begin to discern what do we believe. And this is what they wrote. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With, his, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so creeds have been created through church history, sometimes to deal with heresy, sometimes simply to be able to recount and declare what God's word has said in a statement of consensus, where groups of Christians from churches all over would gather and say, this is what we believe. Sometimes today we call these doctrinal statements, statements of doctrine that a denomination would hold, that a church would have. We have one at Houston Street. I wrote one when I was ordained. The denomination we're a part of has one. In fact, we adopted our denomination's doctrinal statement as our church's doctrinal statement. And so as we write those things, one of the questions become is, how do we determine what's sound doctrine today? What is sound doctrine and what is actually unsound in doctrine? Now, I want to make this distinction. Unsound doctrine isn't always heresy. Unsound doctrine can be error, but isn't always heretical. Sometimes it is. The Arian uh, theology was heresy. And sometimes unsound doctrine is heretical. It eats at the deity of either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. It erodes who they are in their three and oneness as the triune God. It attacks salvation being found in Christ alone. It attacks the authority of Scripture. So as we unpack doctrine today, I want to first start by talking about some views of Scripture. I'm going to just offer kind of three general views of Scripture. One is that Scripture is authoritative. It's inerrant and infallible. That would be the classic historical view that we hold. The Bible is God's authoritative word to us as believers. Now, some people would hold that the Bible contains God's word. That means that there are parts of it that aren't his word, parts of it that are his word, and it's up to you as a believer or you as a church to discern which parts of it are God's word to us today and which part aren't. And there are some people who would believe that the Bible is simply one of the ways that God has spoken. That God has spoken through other means, through Hindu writings. That God has spoken through the Quran. That God has spoken through uh, the Book of Mormon. Other writings as well. And some people would hold that the Bible is one good book 
among many books. Now here are these quotes. This is from Kevin DeYoung. He says this, There is no more authoritative declaration than what we find in the Word of God. No firmer ground to stand on, no more final argument that can be spoken after Scripture has spoken. John Piper says this, God's Word does not wait for us to give permission to be God's Word. If it is God's Word, it is God's Word with or without us. And so today, like as happened through all of church history, there are all kinds of issues and controversies that need to be dealt with. Issues around the Trinity, issues around baptism, issues around salvation, and various cults believe various things. The Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, Christadelphians, none of them believe in the triune God. None of them believe in the Trinity. They have variations of it. They have various, what we'll call in a moment, myths. But it's not just about theology. It can be. Some people not letting passages about the wrath of God, wanting to call him simply a God of love and eliminating any form or type of his wrath. Rob Bell ended up in that camp. But it's also about the way we live. This could be about divorce or remarriage. could be about sexuality. could be about the way we spend our money in consumerism. could be about environmentalism. Any one of a number of issues and issues of our day that at times are debated in the church, some of which end up being disputable matters, but some are actually unsound in doctrine. And how do you discern whether an issue is a disputable matter or an issue of sound doctrine? Well, listen to this from God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Verse 2. Preach the word, and be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, this is a solemn statement. I mean, this is a statement that just kind of is striking. Did you hear what he said as he started? In the presence of God. God is my witness. Jesus Christ who is here with me. Jesus Christ who is with us, who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus as your judge. Who will appear in his kingdom. So in God's presence with Jesus, who by the way is your judge, whose kingdom is coming, I give you this charge. Before God Almighty, I give you this charge. Declare the word. Preach the word. Take it and declare it. And be prepared. What does that mean? It means that you need to work at it. It means you need to have done your homework. It means you actually need to spend some time studying the word, looking at it intently. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Correction is to make sure that what is being said is accurate, it's precise, it's exact. That's correcting something. Correcting something is ensuring an exactness, it's ensuring a preciseness and accuracy. Rebuking is expressing your sharp disapproval. It's making sure that the other person knows that what they're saying is actually in error. It's a, it's a reprimand. And encouraging is just, it's support, it's cheerleading. It's coming alongside of someone and saying, you got it, you understand it. It's coming alongside of someone and uplifting them. It's an encouragement. And then he says this, 
do these things, preaching the word in, being prepared in season and out, that means at any time, with correction, rebuke, and encouragement, he says, do this with great patience and careful instruction. Be meticulous. Be patient in the way you go about it, recognizing that God's at work in you too. And it's his spirit that changes people. Be careful in the way you instruct. Think through these things thoroughly. And be thoughtful in the way you present them. Verse 3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. He says the time will come when people will stray from the truth of Scripture. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to hear what their itching ears want. Or, or to say, sorry, what their itching ears want them to hear. They will turn away from the truth. They will turn to miss. Paul says as he's writing to Timothy, there will come a time when people will just gather. People around them who will say what their itching ears want to hear. You know, today we may not do this via by switching church to church to church, so some people do that. But lots of people do this by just surfing the internet. Let's find 10 pastors, 10 theologians that agree with what I'm saying. Let's find people that say that what I'm thinking is right. That what I'm believing is what should be believed. Let's just find people that I can align my views and my thoughts with. And lots of people want to do that all the time. It says here that they turn their ears away from the truth. So we're turning from the truth and we're turning to miss. Turning from the truth, turning to miss. Well, let's keep going here. As, as we take a look at sound doctrine, in the first book of Timothy, these words are written to unpack this term a bit. Paul writes, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. Paul says, I left you there to stop people from teaching that which is false and to stop them from devoting themselves to these myths. Again, that word is used. And to endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. He says that false doctrine needs to be stopped. And it's obviously the very opposite of sound doctrine. He says that myths should no longer be taught. And he says, if you're not believing the truth, what you believe is a myth. It's, a, it's just a myth. It's a fable. It's make-believe. And so if people aren't believing the truth about God, if it's not accurate, what they believe is a myth. If people aren't believing the truth about salvation, what they believe is a myth. If people aren't believing the truth about Scripture, they're believing a myth. If people aren't believing the truth about the way God has called us to live, they're believing a myth. And they speculate about endless genealogies. Genealogies were incredibly important to the world at that time, to the Jewish world, to the Greco-Roman world. Why? Because if you could prove that in your heritage was someone famous, was royalty, was wealth, it meant that your level in society where you were on the hierarchy of society was raised because in your lineage was someone, in your ancestry was someone that was of great importance. Verse 8 of the same passage. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, for rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, for liars, for perjurers, 
and notice this, for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So Paul says the law is good. God has given us the law. That doesn't mean we don't need to understand how to interpret it. Of course we do and understand it. And here as it uses the term law, the law is used in a variety of ways in scripture, sometimes specifically and only referring to the Old Testament law and the law under the Old Covenant. But here as he's talking about God's law, he's talking about God's law in its entirety. God's law in the Old Covenant, that which is carried through into the New Covenant, God's law in its entirety. He says, God's law, the law that God has given is good. And the reason God can give law is because it's according to sound doctrine. That's why he says, if you do these things, what is true? You're doing what is contrary to sound doctrine. In fact, it's no longer conforming to the gospel that concerns the glory of God. He says, if, if, if you shift on these things, as you shift on the things that God has made clear, you are no longer living according to sound doctrine. You're no longer living according to the gospel. You're not conformed to it anymore, is what it says. And you're no longer bringing glory to God. Those are pretty strong statements. And normally we would think of those statements as only being made when it comes to specific doctrines. But here, the statement is made around what? For those who kill their fathers or mothers. Sexual immorality. Practicing homosexuality, slave trading, lying, perjury, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious or to the gospel concerning the glory of this blessed God. So pause there for a minute. I'm going to keep going. What do you do when there's when there's doctrine that's no longer sound? Well, he tells us in Titus one. We hear this. He must hold. This is an elder. An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Hold on to what has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine, and you can refute false doctrine, those who oppose it. Romans 16, verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions, who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. Keep away from them. So, what do we do? What do we do when we find unsound doctrine? Well, sometimes we find unsound doctrine in theology, like I've mentioned earlier, like the Trinity. Now, this doesn't mean that at times, as we try to understand the Trinity, that there aren't nuances, that we're not trying to grapple with some concepts. I've been recently reading some books on the eternal generation of Christ, meaning the fact that he is, is, has always been and is a part of the triune God. He's begotten by the Father, having always existed, that he is the Lord. And at times, as you read different books and thoughts, people are, offering different nuances, trying to understand and grapple with what it means that Jesus has always existed. He is part of the triune God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And he incarnated himself, lived and died, being raised to life again three days later, reigning at the right hand of the Father. None of the people, as they grapple with these nuances of the authors I am reading, would deny the deity of Christ. But different language is being used. That doesn't mean they're unsound in doctrine. But someone who would be denying the deity of Christ would, like a Jehovah Witness or a, a Mormon. They believe a myth. They believe a myth. And sometimes there truly are disputable matters. Scripture talks about this. We went through a whole series on this just last year. Sometimes disputable matters arise around sacred days. That's one of the 
issues or areas mentioned in Romans itself. Sometimes disputable matters arise over other issues in scripture that are mentioned, or we see movement. It could be around divorce or remarriage, where you see that divorce is hated by God, and yet it's regulated by God. Jesus says, except for pornea, except for um, unfaithfulness, that you cannot divorce. And Paul says, if you're abandoned, you are divorced. You are no longer bound, is the term that's used, which is the same term he uses for those who are widowed. They're no longer bound in their marriage. And so in some of these areas, you see movement. And as we try to understand what God has said, we grapple with the text. But when it comes to disputable matters, I've always offered these three things. Some things are clear. It's really clear God has said, never steal. He is a great provider. Always clear. Some things are cloudy. I just mentioned a couple. Sacred days, um, divorce and remarriage. They're hard to understand at times, grappling with them. Though we have positions, at times we hold those positions, not calling those that have differing positions heretics or unsound in doctrine. And some things are personal. They're personal. That could be areas of sexuality. Alcohol, when someone's grown up in the home of an alcoholic. They're personal. And sometimes the personalness of an issue creates a greater cloudedness. But today on a couple of issues I'm going to mention briefly, I found people are calling things that God has made clear disputable. So an example would be when it comes to abortion. Some would say to me, well, Dwayne, like abortion's a disputable matter. I've now heard this. Abortion's a disputable matter. It's not mentioned at all in scripture. Like, whoa, the term itself may not ever be used in scripture, but the taking of life is very made very clear in scripture. God is the author of life and only God takes life. It is his to give. It is his to take. So theologically, I believe that abortion is something that is outside of what God has allowed for because life is sacred given by him. It's God's gift to us. And so I believe very clearly that that statement is suggesting that abortion then is murder and is wrong. In that same statement, I believe the incarnation is another theological reason for why abortion is outside of sound doctrine. The incarnation shows that Jesus, to be fully human, didn't come down as a one-year-old or a five-year-old. He was actually knit together in Mary's womb for nine months. He was incarnated. Life begins at conception. Practically, people will say to me all kinds of things like, well, you know, Dwayne, this, this fetus isn't life. But in fact, it is. It's a separate piece of DNA. And anywhere, any place on the planet where we have two pieces of DNA, we recognize them both as being life. And we recognize the rights of the one piece of DNA, the one human being that is weaker, that has lesser choice, lesser voice, over and against the one that has greater choice and greater voice in every situation except for this one that I can find anywhere on the planet. And then people come to me and say, well, a woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her body. But truthfully, none of us do. I can't go to the hospital today and have my arm cut off. I can't go in and say, take out my liver. I don't like it. And so people create myths. A woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her body. Well, that's not true. A fetus isn't life. That's not true. Abortion is not mentioned in the Bible. That's not true. They're all myths and unsound in doctrine. The same would be true in sexuality, where people would say, well, Jesus is really silent on sexuality. He really says nothing. Well, Jesus says a lot about sexuality. He actually refers back to the creation account where God creates woman as a companion to man. And God blesses them and says that they are who is to wed. 
God is very, Jesus' story is incredibly clear that if the marriage is not between a husband and wife, that the alternative is celibacy. And people will say all the time, well, man, you know, celibacy, that, that's just wrong. I mean, I mean, what you're doing to people is evil and awful. No, if it's what God's called someone to, it's blessed and it's good. But we create all kinds of myths around things. People will talk to me about how scripture is unclear about issues of same-sex attraction and homosexuality and the action of it. And yet, any time you read of it anywhere in scripture, God is saying it's always outside of the balance. And so even here in this passage, we looked at in 1 Timothy, it's very clear, it's unsound in doctrine to be acting upon that inclination. Now I want you to note this, because this is really important. Paul says, as we teach the word, do so with great patience and careful instruction. He's really clear that we may need to come to the place where we rebuke, but he says, you need to do this with patience. That's not been my strength all the time. Sometimes I get riled up, worked up. He says, Dwayne, be patient. Teach with great patience and careful instruction. One of the eye-opening moments for me was when Sam Albury was with us and I heard him teach on the area and in the area of same-sex attraction, I began to think about all of the controversial issues today that I believe are unsound in doctrine and began to think through, how am I gonna teach these issues with great patience and careful instruction. How am I going to get into the minds of the people who disagree with me and think through what they're thinking so that I can show them what God has said and reveal to them that what God has said is good? Do you know you can trust what God has said? Whatever God has said is good. He is the creator. God is the creator. Isn't that good news? He knows what's best for you. He hasn't just arbitrarily written things in a book that he doesn't think are good for you. He wasn't just in heaven saying, ah, you know, I don't want them to do this. Oh, and I do want them to do this. He knew how we were wired and the best way for which we should live. He knew what would grant him the greatest glory and he knew what would grant us the greatest freedom. What God has written is good. What God has written will grant us freedom, true freedom. What God has written will allow us to flourish. The question is, do you believe that? What God has written is good. What God has written is freeing. What God has written will allow us to flourish. Flourish. God is never out to ruin your life. He's out to give you life in abundance. And that's why we're Bible-based. That's why we study the Word. We study the Word because God's granted us this incredible gift to know who He is, who we are, how we're to live, and how we're to relate to each other. Kevin DeYoung says this, as the people of God, we believe that the word of God can be trusted in every way to speak what is true, command what is right, and provide us with what is good. So you can trust God. So as I close off, just a, a few thoughts. If today you've been challenged, if today you've been challenged, maybe you're someone who's been sitting here saying, man, I know what the word says, and I've been trying to find teachers who will say what I want to hear. Stop. Come back to what the Word says and find teachers that are aligned with the Word on those topics and issues. Secondly, dig into the Word. It's hard work. I know it is, but dig into the Word. It's God's Word granted to us. Use helps like the Gospel Coalition, Ligonier Ministries, others, Desiring God. Great helps us there. Some fantastic commentaries to help us understand who God is, who we are, how we're to live, how we're to honor Him. If you're struggling in reading the Word, I was just talking to someone recently who was really wrestling with reading the Word, and my advice was, start with your favorite book. Find your favorite book of the Bible. What is it? He said Proverbs. I said, then, then start reading Proverbs again. 
find your favorite book. Well, I've read it a few times. doesn't matter. Go back to your favorite book. And lastly, pray that God's Spirit will open up your eyes to the truth of the Word and will allow your life to see that what God has said is good, what God has said is freeing, and what God has said will allow you to flourish as you bring Him glory and honor and good. Every time I open the Word, I'm like, Spirit of God, would you open my eyes to reveal your truth to me because I can't understand this book, but you can help me do so. Would you pray with me? We're thankful for your word, O oh God. Cause our church, Houston Street Baptist, to always be grounded in it, to be Bible-based. What an amazing gift you've given us. God, help us to know that you speak truth and that what you have spoken will always, always grant us freedom, be for our good, and allow us to flourish while it brings you glory. We pray you would help us to dig into your word, asking this in the powerful, resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.